Hello. Welcome and thank you for joining us and listening to our podcast, The God Beyond the Bible. Our podcast is released weekly each Friday. The content of each episode is based on the questions and curiosities we all have about God and the Bible. Many of our topics are considered taboo in the minds of the mainstream church. You will find our discussions to be, I think, refreshing and often far from traditional. But we don't just skirt around these complex issues, but confront them head on, and not in the way you're used to hearing them discussed on typical Christian talk shows. I'm Alan Rowland, creator and host of The God Beyond the Bible. As of the launch of this podcast, I've been a pastor for more than 35 years. My co-host is my daughter, Trayson, and our engineer, co-producer, is my daughter, Tabitha. Our mission is to encourage our audience, along with us, to open our minds to the reality that God is simply too big to be fully explored or experienced by the reading and studying of a single ancient work. In short, the Bible's not the sum of God, and to think this is to limit what He has done, is doing, and what He will do in our future. So with introductions made, thank you for listening, and let's dive into the topic of the day. And welcome, Seekers, to podcast number 119 of God Beyond the Bible, the podcast designed by and for Seekers. Uh, If you're a regular listener, you're already aware that we're revisiting some of our earliest episodes with fresh eyes and renewed fervor. Today's topic will be one that we discussed in episodes four and five, titled Lost and Forbidden Books, part one and two. But first, uh, how about the quote? Our quote is from Ralph Waldo Emerson says what lies behind you and what lies in front of you pales in comparison to what lies inside of you that's right i like that and our shout outs yeah our shout outs today i thought since we're going back through our older episodes would be a good time to give a shout out to kirk and natalie and all of our really long time listeners that have been with us through those really rough early episodes (laughs) while we were kind of getting the hang of this some of them are pretty hard to listen to i know but we still made some good points we did and we're glad to have you guys still here with us after two and a half years As we aforementioned, today we're going to take a fresh look at the writings concerning the Judeo-Christian community that did not make the cut into our present-day collection of writings we call the Bible. Now, most people are somewhat familiar with the number, uh, you know, with a number of these works, the Book of Enoch being perhaps the most recognized, but the reality is there are literally, literally dozens of ancient works that were written and, and covered many of the same topics and time periods as those that made the cut into the Bible. And they were preserved through the ages, yet they were rejected, some as recent as just a few centuries ago. The position of the organized church, which for obvious reasons is the single most powerful influence on the Christian religion and its subscribers, is that these rejected books were culled out from the writings that made the cut to be in the Bible by means of some divine and supernatural process. The reality is, to the disappointment of those who have been convinced that our modern English Bible is somehow a complete and finished work of the divine himself, it's always been man, with his well-intended but feeble and egotistic opinions that caused these books to be rejected. And it was reported that at one of such of these meetings of the Roman Catholic Church in the 3rd or 4th century, that all of the books and the scrolls were heaped upon a small table, and those that fell off of the table were considered to be rejected by the hand of the divine. So I guess that's kind of like drawing lots. Whether or not this actually happened really can't be proven or disproven. 
And if it were known to be true, it's doubtful that anyone associated with either the Catholic or the Protestant church movement would really want this tale to be in the forefront of the public knowledge. <laughs> no. Like, we threw them on the table and those fell off, so God and, you know, didn't want I'm those. I'm sitting thinking how this would work, and so maybe it was scrolls. I don't know if some of them were papyrus, what they were. But I'm thinking, you know the ones you put on the bottom and the center of the table are going to make the cut. But, yeah. I mean, the only fair way to do it would have... <laughs> Be like have six people run up to the table at the same time and chunk yeah. all of them at the table <laughs> now if you're interested in dates times and participants and officiators of these meetings for the purpose of editing the bible we encourage you to go back to our february 2019 episode of god beyond the bible titled lost and forbidden books and there are actually two episodes mm-hmm. episodes one and two lost and forbidden books and uh, that should be episode three and four and also listen to episode five titled how did we get the bible Now, we did a lot of research, and we went into a lot of detail with names and dates and such concerning these books and how and why they didn't make the cut. In this Fresh Look episode, we'd like to mostly talk about the impact that the editing of the ancient texts have had on our Bible and those who regard its teaching as fundamental to faith, that is, of course, those who are products of the Judeo-Christian influences. As we stated, the editing began just decades following the fall of the nation of Israel and the destruction of Jerusalem. Surviving Jewish leaders quickly assembled and began to cut everything from the text that had any inkling of Greek or Roman influence. And this included many texts that had originally been written in Hebrew but were later translated into Greek, and the original scrolls and manuscripts written in Hebrew were destroyed in the destruction or just lost and misplaced throughout the centuries. And you've got to understand, they had such a hate for... Rome, yes. the Rome and the Greek, that they anything that had that had been translated into Greek, they destroyed it. This yes. was actually called the Hellenistic cleansing. Yes, the Hellenistic cleansing, yes. So, first, let's discuss the motive behind editing and condensing the large supply of texts and writings that existed in the earliest centuries following Christ's ministry and the work of the early disciples. I think everyone will agree that. The Roman Catholic Church is responsible for 90% of the editing, and they made it no secret. Hmm. It was done to restrict the common man's access to these writings and to establish a single power, that is, the church themselves, as the one and final authority concerning the divine and man's spirituality. Basically, it was a grab for power, control, and money. And that motivation still exists in both the Catholic and the Protestant movements today. When you control information, you control the masses. That's right. At the same time as these groups and individuals were editing and destroying many of the texts they deemed unworthy to be considered for their condensed spiritual texts, they simultaneously launched an effort to declare what they had preserved and included in the collection of works as divine. This is a very important point because merely having a monopoly on the text is of no real consequence unless in the minds of those you wish to control, the text you have is to be considered sacred and holy and delivered to the organization by the hand of the divine himself. This goes to that, hey, God said something to me. He told me how to fix all your problems. (laughs) 
I mean, I mean, that's kind of what it feels like when you read back through the. But y'all, y'all got to come over here to us. And, and we're not just grabbing this. Go back and listen to those episodes. We went in a lot of detail yes. showing the meetings and who met and who over the meetings, and it just your eyes will probably glaze over, but so we're just we're summarizing and just going over because we're just talking about the impact that all of this has had on society especially the religious community right and with the point made how significant is the impact of this successful effort to elevate the bible to the level of divine on the religious community even (laughs) today people will viciously attack you for casting doubt on the authenticity and divine nature of the bible is it because they have never learned of its origin and transitions through the centuries or because they prefer not to know. Well, I decided that since this seemed like an apologetics kind of question, I went ahead and went to the leading apologetics website, gotquestions.org, um, and asked its question about asked it the question about is the Bible divine? And their answer is the Bible is the God-breathed, inspired, inerrant word. It has been meticulously protected from any edit or revision by God's hand himself for centuries. Oh, my gosh. But do you realize if you say that, if you say that every edit that has been done has been by God's hand himself, then you're taking away man's free will to make those Mm -hmm. decisions of editing. You you run into holes, and I had never realized all these years, and, and I don't, I don't want this to sound bad, but it's true. When you put apologetic answers up beside each other, you can just shoot them full of holes all the time. When you really take a step if back, you they will contradict objectively themselves. Because you looking. can only accept, and guys, I'm going to say this out there, and I'm sorry if you're still in a place where you listen to apologetics. You can only believe an apologetics answer if you believe it with blind faith. That's that right. is the only place that it makes sense. You can't logic. No. Or even proof or science or uh, or history. No. You can't. History, it doesn't even prove out history. Am I number nine? I think you are. Okay. Hasn't the Christian religion more or less painted itself into a proverbial corner by placing such high esteem on a single item? By continuing the effort to elevate the Bible to the divine, have we not basically elevated this human-influenced work to be equal with God himself in importance? Sure. And if you think about it, if the divinity of the Bible is brought into question, then the whole organization built around this principle is in danger of collapsing in on itself. And it's no better way. It, the, the Christian religion has painted itself into this it corner, has. and it's standing fast with guns drawn, mm-hmm. going to fight to the last, and because, it, that's what it will be, because, to the last. Because how can I bring you into submission if I don't have this power yeah. to hold over you? Yeah. Okay. You're 10. Let's be honest. Man tends to want to have sacred things associated with his belief system, right? Yes. Now, could it be that the elevation of the Bible to the level of divine is man's attempt to create a modern equivalent of other religions, sacred articles, uh, such as perhaps the Ark of the Covenant, as it was for the Jewish culture and religion? Well, you know, guys, I mean, we try and do this with other Christian relics. The search for the Holy Grail, the Shroud of Turin. We want these physical reminders because it's really... I mean, guys, it's really no different than when you go on vacation and you buy a souvenir when you're there. And it's really no different than the one you'd order for a quarter of that price on Amazon and have (laughs) delivered to your house. But it's that idea of a real physical connection to that place and time. And that's what we're seeking, but we're seeking it the wrong way. Yeah, we're doing it the wrong way. We're going, it's fine. It's fine to have things you consider sacred as far as that goes. But, you know. It's kind of like I 
read a thing a while back. Someone was saying that I didn't know. I guess back a couple of um, about a couple of decades ago, it was really popular to sell these quote unquote pieces of the true cross. <laughs> became this thing, and someone said that they measured a bunch of these pieces that were sold out and decided that if they were all came from the same cross, that the cross would have had to have been like 300 foot tall and about <laughs> 70 feet wide. And yeah. so another point that might be argued here is along the same lines. Does it allow the Christian religion to be a lazy man's approach to the divine, considering he has an external object to look to as the final authority instead of putting forth the effort to develop a personal, internal spirituality that often takes years to develop. That's where I was for a very long time. Yeah. Oh, well, I've got the Bible. I've got it all right. Well, what you said in one of the earlier episodes. Well, it's all in there. It's everything you need is right there. It's in there. I'm going to throw this out there. I really think that this was the idea behind the first two commandments you know, you will not make into you any graven image and you will have no other God before me was this idea of you have to stop looking at all of these external things (laughs) that are going to satisfy you. And you have to listen to the spirit that's within you. And then, and in the same aspect that looking to the Bible, is that being the, the end all for everything I needed to have my relationship with Christ that put me into such a faith crisis. And that's that's a substitute. That's just a substitute for the relationship. That's just another idol. I mean, really, really. what number am I guys? Well, sorry. Back to the lost and forbidden books that have existed as long as any of the other accepted Bible texts. Do you guys think that there's a concerted effort by the church to discourage those who subscribe to the Christian religion from exploring these ancient texts? (laughs) Of course there is. Often when someone does read these texts and ask questions about their context in relation to the Christian religion, the response from those in roles of leadership at best is an attitude of fearful doubt. Almost as though the person who is exploring these ancient texts are committing an act of heresy. Of course. Of course. Now, as we discussed in other episodes, such as episode five on how we got our modern English Bible, it is clear that much editing in the translation was done to the text that we do have to ensure that it aligned with the interpretation and belief of those who were translating it. As we've talked about before, many words in the Bible were translated to less likely English words to promote the dogmas and doctrines promoted by the organized church. Now, we talked about that a lot in the Revelation studies where they called it the world instead of the age. Mm -hmm. This age shall not, this generation, this age shall not pass, or when this age passes away, and then they put the world passes away. When the world ends, this age, when this age ends, and we put it, when this world ends. Well, and you can even argue... I know there are a lot of people who believe the King James Version is the one and only true version. And that the thing is, with all these new versions coming out, you can look in your footnotes and people who are very hard into this. There's only one translation that's right. When your Bible adds or says this was not included in the original text, they're going all the way back to the original. I know the New Living Mm -hmm. Translation goes back to the original Greek, the original original Hebrew, even visits some of the Latin just to see Mm -hmm. how how it works. Well, one of the most obvious abuses of this method of translation is found in the eighth chapter of the New Testament book of Romans. In Romans 8.1, the King James Version reads, There is therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Very few people who have read and quoted this verse are aware that this is not what the original text said. 
In the original text, it reads, There is therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. End of quote. This is an unconditional statement, but for reasons that should be obvious, the translators added a condition to the statement that reads, Who walks not after flesh, but after the Spirit. And, you know, that might seem harmless enough, but if you take into consideration that to say there is therefore no condemnation to those which are in Christ Jesus is an unconditional statement that liberates the believer on Christ to putting an end to any kind of condemnation. However, when you add who walks not after the flesh, but after the spirit, you've now made some believers still subject to condemnation. That is, those who are considered by some authority to be walking after the flesh. And of course, that discerning authority would always be the the church. And this is just one of the many liberties the translators took in translating the text from its original language. This is where we have to face reality. Humans can't help but be human. No matter how good and well-intended our efforts are and how inspired we may uh, be to do these things or to say or write something down, we're still influenced by our predetermined, pre-existing beliefs and the ego associated with protecting and proving these beliefs to be the right belief. Even those by whom the original text was penned could not totally separate themselves from their deep-rooted beliefs, and certainly not from the culture and religious beliefs of their day. And I think we should remind ourselves, too, that the English language in and of itself is tricky. I mean, have you guys seen the thing that goes around the it's a three-word sentence, she loved him. And you take the word only, and wherever you put it in the sentence, it changes it. Yeah, she only, only she loved him. She only loved him. She loved only him. She loved him only. Yeah. Anywhere you put it, it changes. And so you have to be aware that even the slightest change... And in you, a word, and then when you start adding whole sentences, and then you got like that, then, I am that right. I am. Yeah, I mean it's yeah. the same. And, and it's where you put the comma. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you've got to understand that in the Hebrew, then it's it's especially complicated to put it into English because they don't use words like the and all right. of that stuff. They, or vowels, or even vowels. Mm-hmm. It's all just consonants, and you've got to try to figure out what the intent was. Yes. What what words go between? And if you put and where a butt should have been. You've changed that's the changed whole the, Really? That's right. I mean, seriously, that if you put right. and there and it should have been but, then you've changed the whole meaning. That's right. A perfect example is the conflict of opinion of two of the contributors of the New Testament, and that is Paul and his faith alone approach to being right with God, and James and his faith plus works approach to being right with God. But that's for another episode. So in the meantime, may the divine's unconditional grace peace and love be on in and radiate out from each of you our fellow seekers from all of us here at god beyond the bible did you enjoy listening to god beyond the bible do you have an idea for an episode connect with us today visit our website at godbeyondthebible.com all one word or send us an email at email at godbeyondthebible.com Or you can visit us on Facebook. Just type God Beyond the Bible into the search bar.